0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing this evening for the reading of God's Word, our sermon text is coming from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And our sermon text itself will be from verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, but for the sake of context, we'll begin reading at verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is our sermon text, beginning at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray together and ask His blessing on our time this evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have just sung of the perfection of Your Word. We have sung of how it is more precious to gold uh, than gold to us. We have sung of how much sweeter it is than honey from the honeycomb. And Lord, we pray, even as we turn to a passage of scripture which has led many to stumble, that you would bless us this evening and that you would remind us that whatever you have taught us in your word is true and is perfect, and it is your standard to be obeyed and to be enacted. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us grace, each one of us, that we, Lord, might put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let that be true of us this evening as you teach us from your word, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, I suspect it comes as no surprise to you this evening that there are many teachings in the word of God which the world does not appreciate, to say the least. I believe it was H.L. Minken who, referring to God's electing predestination of the saints, said that Calvinism belonged next to cannibalism in his personal closet of horrors. Now, the world hates the doctrine of predestination. The world hates the doctrine of hell. It's no crowd pleaser, that doctrine, in our culture today. It gives a lot of people heartburn to think that an eternal, just, and holy God might be willing to punish people forever because of disobedience to his standards. And we can think of doctrines like this all afternoon if we had the time, but remarkably, even if we were to continue to multiply doctrines, I think that we could come to none that the culture today despises As much as the topic which we are taking up this evening. Because this evening we have reached that point in our study, which is being framed, as you know, by the godly man's picture and the topics that Thomas Watson covers in that great work. We have reached the point in our study where we consider uh, the reality that the godly man is meant to be good, he's meant to be godly in all his relationships. And what Watson means by that is simply this, that the godly man allows the Scriptures, he allows the Word of God to color and to inform every relationship which he has, even the most intimate relationships of all, such as we see laid out here. And what we are meant to learn this evening from what the Apostle Paul has told us is simply this, That as Christians, our godliness must find expression in all of our relationships. You see here that Paul deals with a number of different kinds of relationships, as we've already noted. Some of these are the most intimate that a person can have. For instance, beginning in verses 18 and going through verse 19... Uh, Paul tells us of the relationship between the wife and the husband. And he frames what it looks like to have a biblically ordered marriage. In verses 20 to 21, he turns and discusses what it means to have a biblically ordered parental relationship. He explores there the relationship between fathers and mothers and their children. And then at the end even, he turns and discusses uh, in a bit of a uh, particular way for his context, but nonetheless, with the application for us today, uh, the relationships that the Christian is to have with relation to his vocation. And that's how we're going to see this text this evening, or seek to study this. This evening, we're first going to look at the relationship, the marital relationship of the godly person. Then we're going to look at the parental relationship of the godly person. And then last, we're going to consider the vocational relationships of the godly person. And the purpose of this is simply to see how what he has already said, speaking of Paul here, in Colossians, beginning at chapter 12, really vaguely or generally about all Christians works itself out in the nitty-gritty details as it were of our life and what we're going to learn is simply what we've already stated that our lives and all of our relationships are to be an expression of our godliness now let's begin to consider this text by looking at verse 18 We'll read verse 18 and 19 before returning to pay particular attention to 18. Verse 18 says this, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's tempting to jump directly into verse 18, but before we do so, it's important for us, if we're going to understand what a Christian marriage looks like, to take a step back for a moment and consider both 18 and 19 together. Because when we take them together, what we learn, and this is very important, is that the Christian marriage is a mutual uh, relationship. In other words, it's a relationship of mutual responsibility. You see, both parties in the marriage, both the wife on the one hand and the husband on the other, bear responsibility for the maintenance of the marriage. If we are to have God-honoring marriages, it requires teamwork as it were, between the husband and the wife. And that's important. That's very important that we don't lose sight of that as we then turn to verse 18 and consider the particulars of the wife's role in the marriage. Verse 18, probably the most controversial of all the verses we'll deal with here this evening uh, for our world today. It says this, "'Wife, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord.'" You know you've reached a controversial verse when you open up various commentaries and you see people going in a million different directions, and that's the case here in this verse. You'll see a lot of people trying to escape the force of this verse. You'll see a lot of people trying to nuance their way out of the plain meaning of this verse, and I don't want us to do that this evening. It's a verse that falls like a sledgehammer on our modern ears. But nonetheless, this is God's word. It's God's word. And we have to deal with it honestly here. The clear command is for husbands to leave their homes and for wives to submit to them. Now, some will argue that what's taking place here is mere cultural accommodation this can take a number of different forms some people would point out that what we have before us in the larger section of text is really what was known in the Greco-Roman world as a household code. It's a code which outlines the behaviors that are appropriate for all the various members of the household. And what they'll do is they'll look at verse 18 and other verses in this text and they'll say simply this, well, what's happening is the apostle Paul is seeking to accommodate himself to the culture of his day. But what he's seeking to do is he's seeking to avoid creating some sort of obstacle between himself and his teaching in Roman society at large. I would suggest there are two grave errors with that position. The first error is that this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. We just read a text last evening, or last Sunday evening, where he said that he was willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ, where he called his hearers to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul is not scared of the culture. He's willing to confront it head on when that's necessary. But the second thing that I would have you draw your attention to is simply the text. It's there at the end of the verse. The text is clear. As is fitting in the Lord. This is not something that Paul got from Greco-Roman society, he was not reading Aristotle. This is something that Paul got from God's word all the way back in the book of Genesis. And it's the consistent testimony of God's word everywhere. Wives are to submit to their husbands. In the same breath, he turns to husbands, though. Now look at what he says here in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Well, I spent a long time on verse 18, and the reason for that is simple. That's what's so controversial. But that does not mean that that's the only difficult thing about this text. Because this text calls wives to a great responsibility. It calls them to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, but it calls husbands to a great responsibility as well. The sister passage for the passage we're examining this evening is, of course, Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians chapter 5 fleshes out the meaning of Paul here. And it tells us that husbands aren't just to love their wives in some vague way, but husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Willing even to give up of their own lives for the sake of the lives of their wives. What is being taught here is that the husband is to be a leader, yes. But he is to be a leader modeled after Christ. He's to be a shepherd leader. He's to be a servant leader. He's to be a leader marked here by gentleness... And not harshness. he says it very clearly here. Do not be harsh with them. Brothers, let me speak to you directly. Men, this text, I think, has very broad application to us. It has very broad application to husbands here. But... If we can say nothing else about this text, we can say that this text absolutely condemns any form of marital abuse. It condemns it. Now let me go a step further. If we pair this text with Ephesians 5, and we find there that Christ is to be imaged by the husband in the home, Let me press upon you the great near blasphemy of being harsh and abusive towards a wife and a marriage. Not only are you breaking God's law, you're painting the wrong picture of your Savior. I pray that that is an unnecessary application this evening, but I doubt it is. And it's important for us to think about it. It's important for us to meditate upon it. The husband is to be an image of Jesus in the home. A savior who is gentle, who is lowly, who bears patiently and lovingly with his people. That's what you're called to. This is a mutual relationship. One of mutual responsibility, and of course, a failure to do this, to live this way in the home, not only has effects on the relationship between the man and the wife, but it has a relationship. It has effects even broader than that, and one of those effects, those spillover effects, could indeed even be on the children. That's an important thing for us to consider, even as we turn there in just a moment marriage is to be a picture not only to the spouses but to the children of what the relationship between Christ and his church is to look like friends this is a high responsibility that we are called to those of us who are married but Paul turns his attention now from the marriage relationship to the parental relationship in verse 20. He says there, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then he goes on to address fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, this is interesting. We may have guessed that marriage is a relationship of mutual responsibility. But here... We see that the parental relationship is actually a relationship of mutual responsibility as well, isn't it? We see that both parties here are given tasks, they're given admonition, and and those are simply this that the child is to obey the parents, but the parent is to be careful not to discourage the child, to provoke the child. I think there's a few things that we could say here about this relationship, but the first thing I want to say is directly to the children. Children, listen to what the word of God says here. God's word is telling you now that he's not just concerned with your parents. He's not just concerned with adults being godly, but he's concerned with children. He desires you to be godly just as much as he desires your mom and your dad. That's good news for the children here. And I want to encourage you, even as Paul has addressed you, and even as the Holy Spirit has addressed you through Paul, seek to live lives of godliness, particularly as is laid out here, as it expresses itself in obedience to your parents. That's where God has placed you, and that's where he calls you to be faithful. But it's important, children, and it's important, parents, for us to see that God cares about our children so much so that he's addressed them directly here. Don't forget that, parents or children. So he tells the children to obey their parents and everything. But then he goes on. He addresses, interestingly here, the fathers. But we could expand this, I believe, without doing damage to the text to uh, the mother as well. And he tells us here to be careful as parents uh, that we do not... Provoke our children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I have to say, personally, as I studied this text this week, this may have been the most convicting aspect of it. Because I do not believe that there is anybody in here who is a parent who does not know what it means to provoke their child and to lead them to become discouraged parents, I think we particularly know what this is like when it comes time to correct our children. We're called to that. We're called to bring uh, discipline. Uh, we're called to do that as part of our wider uh, assignment, as it were, to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But, but beware, parents, that we do not do so in such a way that is provoking and that is discouraging. The call to parents here is to be careful that we are always seeking to build up our children, to edify them, that's what that word means, not to tear them down. You know what this is like. You know what it's like when your child does something and you lose your temper. And you know what it's like when instead of bringing loving correction, you come down too hard and you leave them discouraged. Potentially, you leave them at times feeling unloved. And this passage would call us to caution and to carefulness as we seek to shepherd the hearts of our children. And Paul has addressed here the family relationship in both aspects of it he's already addressed wives and husbands he's addressed children and parents and now he turns uh, from the family relations as it were uh, to the household considered more broadly in his own time now note here that we live in a very different age we don't live in an age where any of us have bond servants another word for this is slaves we don't live in an age where we have people living in our homes who wait upon us. And if you note, Paul it spends a, a lot of ink comparatively speaking to slaves and not very much speaking to masters. Many people point this out. The common condition of the Christian in the first century was not to be a master. It was to be a slave. That was the condition of many Christians that Paul was writing to. But he speaks here uh, in this particular relationship in such a way that it has export for us as well. It has application more broadly. While none of us are living in this particular situation, almost all of us have some vocational calling which this situation can apply to. What do I mean by that? Well, we are either employees or employers. And that, friends is the same basic principle that we see here. And that will become obvious, as it were, as we read the text. Look at verse 22. He says there, Bondservants, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He continues, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and do and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And he goes on to note again that for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. We'll pause right there. He's just covered the section that he's writing regarding the bondservant. And we see there that he lays out a number of principles for those who find themselves in this condition as believers. He says a number of things to them. First, he tells them that they are to work with a sincerity of heart. And they're to work with a sincerity of heart not because they desire to please men, but they are to work out of a fear of God. Second, he tells them that they are to work heartily out of service to the Lord. They're to work hard. They're to pursue excellence, as it were. They are not to do shoddy work because they don't think the guy they're working for is worth their time and effort. They are to see themselves as serving the Lord. Next, he tells them that they are to work diligently. And they are to do so... Not seeking to climb any corporate ladder. I doubt that's what he's referring to here, but in our day. But rather, they are to work diligently, knowing that their heavenly Father will reward them. Seeking not the rewards of this earth, as it were, but the reward that awaits them in heaven. And then last, he tells them, and this is important, that they are to work with godly contentment, trusting in the justice of God not in the justice of man. These are all extremely important principles for the Christian worker. And if we think about it for a moment, we can see why. The first thing we should notice is that what Paul has said here takes our relationships vocationally, as it were, and it reminds us that the way we work is not contingent Upon the person we work for, and he's speaking here to bond servants, and we can see from the rest of the verses that he's not exactly telling them, "Hey, you know, you guys have good bond servants, so you should do a good job." No, he's not saying that. He, he, he's actually, if we can infer anything from verse twenty-five, maybe saying the opposite. His view is that these people are working for people. We're not treating them well, potentially. Maybe there are people who the Christians here would have thought, this guy is not worth it. I should just do the bare minimum to get by. But what Paul's doing is he's saying, no, that's not how you should work. You shouldn't work that way. And the reason you shouldn't work that way is because you're working for the Lord and not just for your boss, as it were. That's an important principle for us. It's an important principle for all of us, no matter what we do. And that's the second application I think we can draw from this. Look at the people he's speaking to. He's not speaking to preachers. He's not speaking to missionaries. He's not speaking to open-heart surgeons. He's not speaking to people who work at Christian nonprofit agencies. He's speaking to slaves. He's speaking to servants. He's speaking to people who sweep the floors, who work in the fields, who do a lot of menial work for some people who may not be that great. And friend, you shouldn't miss the force of what he's saying there. He's saying that it doesn't matter what you're doing. It matters how you do it. You see, the Lord looks upon all lawful vocations as service to himself. That's the point that he's driving us to here. When you go to work, no matter if you are a pastor, no matter if you're a lawyer, no matter if you're the community dog catcher, You're supposed to be doing the best work that you can do. And the reason for that is simple. You're not doing it because of the value of your vocation, first and foremost. You're doing it because you're working to glorify God. That is an essential thing for us to understand here this evening, friends. All work, all work, not just sacred work so-called, but all work is valuable in the eyes of our god and if we can think this way then we can go a long way towards working hard for the lord and we see as the text continues there particularly in verse 24 that the lord rewards our work now you can see how that would be important particularly for the people that paul is addressing here Chances are that they are overworked and that they're underpaid, as it were. But what he's telling them here is don't become frustrated. Look forward. Look forward to the day when your heavenly father will reward you for what you have done. Maybe nobody else thinks it's valuable, but he sees it. And it's his pleasure that you're working for not your boss, who may or may not appreciate you the way he should. The text continues, though, and he addresses then in verse 25, maybe the other side of that coin. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And he transitions at that point to speak to the masters listen what he says masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven now what he says here of course is of great comfort to anyone who's ever been in a situation where they were treated unjustly You can think of the Christians here who who may have been treated unjustly on a regular basis. And they may look around. They may look at their master mistreating them. They may look at their master looking down upon them and treating them like the scum of the earth. And they may think to themselves, there is no justice. And in an earthly sense, that may be true. But what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them. He's reminding them that whether or not it is paid back on this earth or not, there is a day of reckoning coming for those who are unjust. There's a day of reckoning coming for the unjust master of Paul's day. And there's a day of reckoning coming for the unjust employer of our own day. And he, he bases that upon the reality that... Every one of us, ultimately, has a master, don't we? It doesn't matter if we are, to use the language of our catechism, an inferior or a superior. It does not matter if we have all the earthly power that we could imagine. It does not matter if we have absolutely none. In the eyes of God, there is no partiality. The standard of his justice is not a sliding scale of socio-economic and economic class. One way or the other, it does not matter. This is what the scriptures speak about when they speak in places like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And we learn there that there is no partiality. There's, there's no woman, there's no man, there's no free, there's no slave. There is no partiality in the eyes of God in this sense. When he looks upon a person, he sees them primarily as a sinner or as a saint. Not as a man, not as a woman, not as a master, not as a servant. He sees them as someone deserving of his wrath. Or he sees them in Christ as someone deserving of his grace and mercy. And it's an important lesson for us to learn no matter where we stand on the societal rung. Whether we're at the top or the bottom, friends, let me speak to you frankly this evening. We all have a master in heaven. We all have a master in heaven. And if you're here this evening and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is important for you to know that when the Lord looks upon you, he does not see your privilege or your poverty. He sees your spiritual states. He sees someone standing before him in their sin. Or he sees someone standing before him clothed in the righteousness of his son. Those are the only two options here, friends. And I would implore you this evening, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is indeed your master, but he is also a savior. And he came to seek and to save the lost. And even now, he stands beckoning sinners to come to himself. He is pleading with you at this very moment to flee from your sin to receive and to rest upon him for your salvation. That you might be found in him possessing not a righteousness of your own, but that you might be found in him possessing the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And that's the message that we all need to hear this evening, whether or not we are Christians or not. We all need to be reminded that we have a Master who is in heaven. And we all need to be reminded that there is a day coming where all will be judged and there will be no partiality. But this has a particular application to the master, doesn't it? It has a particular application to those of us who are managers, who are employers in our workplace. It reminds us that while we probably can get away with mistreating people, here and now, there is coming a day when we will not. We will not be able to escape God's judgment, God's criticism for our behavior towards our inferiors. This is a call, friends, those of us who are in positions of authority to exercise that authority with equity and with justice. To exercise that authority in emulation of of our heavenly master not as a tyrant not as a desperate whether it be in the home whether it be as parents or whether it be in the workplace far be it from us that we would treat others in a way that christ jesus would not treat them whether we are inferiors or superiors we are called to express our godliness in every relationship that we have That's the point of the text this evening, and I pray, friends, that it is and it will be true of all of us. May we go forth from here this evening, being those who are willing to live, even when it is contrary to the spirit of our age, according to the text of God's word. May we be those wives who are submitting to our husbands lovingly and well. May we be those husbands who are leading their wives gently and with Christ-like demeanors. May we be those children who are obeying our parents in the Lord and those parents who gently guide and correct our children. And may we be those employers and those employees who exemplify our Savior, remembering always that he sees all, and that he judges all without partiality. May that be true of every one of us this evening, Shiloh Church, for the good of our community, for the extension of the kingdom, and for the glory of our Savior. That's my prayer this evening. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that you indeed would make us men and women, boys and girls, who would exemplify godly living in all of our relationships. We pray, Father, that you would be with the marriages of Shiloh Presbyterian Church. We pray that you would teach those of us who are husbands to live in such a way in our homes that exemplifies the love of the Lord Savior towards His church and towards his children we pray O father that you would teach us as parents to bear with our children even as you bear with us father even though we constantly fail at what you have assigned us to do we pray father that you would give us patience and long-suffering and loving kindness towards our children we pray father for the children of this congregation we pray first lord that they would come to know you and that they would never separate themselves from the body of Christ, but that they, as they grow up, would appropriate to themselves the covenant promises which you have made to them in their baptism, and that they would stand forth as examples of godliness for the world, walking faithfully all the days of their life. But we pray, O Lord, that they would obey their parents and the Lord's, and that in doing so, that they would fulfill their obligation in their responsibilities towards the parents. We pray, O Lord, for all of us in our employment situations, Lord. We pray for those who are underemployed, for those who are unemployed. We pray that you would provide for those. We pray, O Father, for those who suffer under unjust bosses, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and patience. We pray, O Father, for those who manage and for those who are employers themselves, that you, O Father, would remind them of your oversight and authority over them and that they would rule, that they would exercise authority in such a way that would exemplify your justice and your equity. And most of all, Father, we pray that you would build us up all in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that we would live together as a body of Christ in perfect harmony, which only love for you and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ can create. We pray, Lord, that you would preserve us and that you would bless us in these ways for your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.